I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. At the foundation of the current white-hot political friction in America today is a fight over the meaning of something called the American Dream. On one side, the dream is entirely individualistic, a few people becoming obscenely wealthy. And people in the lower economic classes hold out hope that that may be them someday, rising through the decades of hard work to become a multimillionaire. That is the American dream for many, maybe the majority these days. Then there's another actually older definition of the American dream, one in which there is equality of opportunity for all. People caring about their neighbors, making sure everyone's rights are secure. And another traditional phrase has resurfaced in this volatile election year, and that is the use of the historically very controversial term, America first. How does that fit in with where we are in the world today? How offensive to the rest of the world was it intended to be? And how has it been used to incite racism in the past? How did we get here? Is there any hope for restoring the original intent of the phrase American Dream that, as our guest today writes, was once a collective ideal, not an individualistic one, a political dream of egalitarianism which devolved into mere materialism? Our guest today is Sarah Churchwell. Thank you for being with us from London. Thank you very much for having me. Sarah Churchwell has a just-published book called Behold America, The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream, and it's quite a cover. It has a photograph of a rally with people holding American flags and Nazi flags together. <laughs> Nancy McLean, uh, author of Democracy and Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights, Stealth Plan for America Rights, about this book, lifting up haunting voices that speak truth to the Trump era, Sarah Churchwell exposes a century-deep contest between egalitarian democracy and a quest to preserve corporate dominance and white rule under the banner of America First. Well, Sarah Churchwell is a returning guest. She is a professor of American literature and public understanding of the humanities at the University of London the author and editor of several previous books, including the acclaimed Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. She's a native of Chicago, now living in London. This is certainly what the Chinese curse called an interesting time. A lot of books have been sparked by what has happened to America since the election of 2016. Sarah Churchwell, what sparked you to write this book? How did you come up with that title, and why is it needed? Well, the title actually comes from one of the earliest instances of uh, the phrase American Dream in the American political conversation that I could find to describe a national ideal, um, to describe a, a, a value system. It appears earlier, but it's always in very specific and qualified contexts, like the American Dream of a transcontinental railroad or something like that, right? So it's just a very specific goal. But 
a, a kind of unspecified general idea of what the American dream might be um, only begins to emerge around the turn of the 20th century. And um, Behold America was, uh, was a phrase that came out of a speech in, in, uh, in which the phrase was used uh, very early on. And, um, and I liked the idea of it as a kind of a pun um, because it's, it's, it's a, a way for me of suggesting that we need to look at America differently, uh. but also that America needs to look at itself differently. Tuh. Boy, I'll say. <laughs> it's a fascinating book. <laughs> right. uh, of all the truly bizarre statements made by Donald Trump, one that kicked off his campaign on June 16, 2015, still stands out. He said, sadly, the American dream is dead. I, what do you think he intended by that? Does he want us to erase its meaning? Meaning? Why? Why did he say that? Well, look. I mean, first of all, I think you know we'll all we'll all drive ourselves crazy if we try to understand why Donald Trump says what Donald Trump says. Yeah. Um, and I don't think you can look very far for for consistency um, <laughs> or for any kind of you know uh, uh, you know profound thought or, or ideology. Pretty clearly, I mean, he you know he speaks impulsively at the best of times. Yes. Um, but I think he has a, a pretty you know. Um, trite and familiar understanding of the American dream, but, it, but very specifically, I think, one that he remembers from growing up in the 1950s, right? So his version of the American dream is when is when people like him had kind of unquestioned dominance, and America felt like it was the strong man of the world, and prosperity was going to be unending. And for people like that, they say, oh, the 1950s were so great, and that's when the American dream was at its finest. Ah. And they forget that the 1950s was pretty hard on a lot of Americans, right? It was not a great time to be an African-American. No. It was not a great time to be a woman. It was not a great time to be gay. Um, you know, any number of large communities of Americans would not look back fondly on the 1950s. But for somebody like Trump, that's the American dream. is That's what that's what people like that mean by make America great again, is, is you know, make America the way it was then, when when there was a certain kind of, at least from their point of view, certain kind of clarity about how society was, they think, you know, meant to be organized. And of course, what that meant was yes. that people like Donald Trump were in charge and other people had a lot less right and a lot less, uh, you know, um, justice and equality coming their way. Indeed, that, that's very nice for them. Now, when I ask people... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I ask people what the phrase American Dream means, no, my, my sample is exceedingly small. <laughs> Universally, the definition is, as you write, the individual capitalist striving in a free market world, one that is inimical to the safety nets of social democracy. End of quote from you. In other words, today's understanding of the American Dream is every person for him or herself making it rich. You write, this book will show that it, it is exactly the reverse of the ideas the American dream was coined to advance. Though there's a prevailing attitude that history has to be tossed aside, you argue that <laughs> we're all asking questions about the present, but there are far more surprising answers than many may think to be found in the past. Boy, I couldn't agree more. Your book, Behold America, examines the origins and phrases which have buffeted the phrase American dream. Uh, please tell us about uh, the genesis of the phrase American Dream. You say that in its earliest years, there was not an American Dream because there were so many to choose from. Please tell us yeah, more. Absolutely. Well, so what happened was that, the, um, as many people will realize, that the debates that America was having um, about how to organize its economy and its society about 100 years ago are very, very similar to the debates that we're having 
today, and there's a good reason for that. They were emerging from the so-called Gilded Age, the age of monopoly capitalism, and that was an age of rampant inequality. Indeed, it was that moment that coined the idea of the 1% and the 99%. We didn't invent that one either, although a lot of people think we did. Um, so they were talking about the fact that 1% of the country seemed to be controlling, you know, uh, 99% of the wealth, or, you know, well, that's an exactly accurate number, but, you know, that that metaphor yeah. worked for inequality. And what they said was, this kind of inequality, if we allow it to continue, will be the death of the American dream of democracy, right. of justice, of equality, of opportunity for the many, and not just for the few. And, and the thing that I found so striking was that in these early examples, they talk about the growth of this new phenomenon of a multimillionaire, this new category of person that you could be a multimillionaire, imagine. And they all say... That's an un-American dream, right? Because it's because it's about. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that's the thing that kind of you know made me think. Wait a minute, there, people aren't we? People aren't talking about the the um, the the ways in which this this even historians aren't talking about the ways in which this phrase has flipped on its head over time. Of course, most people, as you just said a minute ago, I'm sure most Americans would. I would have until I did this research said that you know. The, a multimillionaire is the is the realization of the American dream. That's the culmination of the rags to riches Horatio Alger story. But they were saying the opposite. They were saying the American dream is are those founding ideals, you know, in the in the Constitution and the and the Declaration of Independence that are supposed to be about democracy and equality and about justice. Now it's still a dream. Nobody's saying that we ever achieved those things, and they weren't saying that then. But they were saying we won't achieve that dream if we let inequality take a stranglehold over our society. And so we have to take some kind of action to stop capitalism from just running away. And they were not arguing for socialism per se. They were just arguing for regulation. They were arguing for protections for, the, for what would eventually become the welfare state. And so you find in the 1930s, for example, when they're after the Depression, and the phrase, that was when the phrase uh, American Dream really became popularized, and became a national catchphrase. But even then, people were using it um, to talk about how to protect people from a, a capitalism that might run amok or a materialism that might run amok, and how to, how to protect our higher dreams, our higher aspirations, again, of uh, those ideals of equality, of opportunity, of justice. And so you find them talking about things like the American dream of universal health care, which, you know, imagine anybody saying that today. But, it, but, they, but they were arguing that, that if America was aspiring to be a country that, uh, in, in which everybody could, as we always, I think, still like to say, was supposed to be a, a country in which people could um, achieve the best of their ability, the best of their character, as Martin Luther King said, you know, to be judged by your character, not by the color of your skin or by your social condition, that in order to do that, you would have to create protections against inequality, recognizing that people weren't starting from a level playing field, and that the American dream should be about making sure that that opportunity, as I say, was for the many, and not just for one or two privileged few, who basically inherit privilege, and then you reinvent European aristocracy, yes. um, which, you know, is pretty much where we are now. Uh, it is pretty much where we are now, and it's what there was this little war in 1776 to avoid yeah. government of by and for the aristocracy. And, and exactly, he, I thought we were opposed to that. <laughs> I, you know, and and reading your book, uh, Behold America, it seems that you know for a really long time the idea of being you know incredibly rich was kind of anti-American. It was something to be looked 
looked down on. And you're saying, you know, it, it, it is against what used to be the American dream that, that everybody uh, had a chance of, of making it. And Exactly. I mean, it's, it's fundamentally unegalitarian, yes, right? Yes. It's, it's some have a great deal and others are in great deprivation. By definition, that's not egalitarian. And, it, and they were saying the American dream is about egalitarianism. Oh, shit. that's how I was brought up. I mean, I, I believed what I was told in <laughs> elementary school. What can I say? Which was in the 50s, I will admit, 50s and early 60s, uh, you know, to believe that in the American uh, possibilities, we won the war. We were the good guys. Uh, yeah, but, but they, these, guys were, these guys weren't saying anything different in one sense. They were just noting that we would have to protect those principles that they wouldn't you couldn't just leave them to look out for themselves oh. and assume that if any if everybody ran around trying to get rich that that would take care of the problem it won't take care of the problem and so you have to be consciously aspiring toward these ideals of opportunity equality uh, democracy and that you know as, as we're all discovering now again um, all over again that democracy is a process it's not something that you achieve and then put away yeah. and say oh look you know we've we've built a democracy it's an it's an ongoing process that requires as, as we were told, again, in the, in the 18th century, it requires eternal vigilance. Well, when Martin Luther King so famously said, I have a dream, I think it, it came from some awareness of, of what the American dream meant to, well, perhaps some of the earlier Americans up until it kind of flipped over. Uh, yeah. And, and, I think that's exactly right. It was one, it was one of the things that surprised me um, in, this, in the research that I did was that because, you know, King is often credited with basically being the first to put those ideas together, to say, hey, you know, there, there is this thing called the American dream, but it's not available to every American. It's only available to white Americans, right. and black Americans share the same dreams, and to connect that, that idea of the American dream to civil rights and to social justice. But what amazed me was that you can see Americans, white Americans, black Americans, Jewish Americans, people across the political spectrum, even on the right, in the 30s, arguing that the American dream was about social social justice, yes. and that the treatment of black people and um, and anti semitism, which was growing in the thirties, oh, yeah. that those things were against the American dream. And and again, I found that a really astonishing, you know, early recognition of that. It was King didn't invent it, um, and in fact, it may be the case that because you know that was when King was growing up, it may be the case that he even heard those uses because it was pretty common. Um, and that he encountered those uses so that he was recovering what was to him an older idea of the American dream uh -huh. rather than inventing a new one. Indeed, and I, I suppose that makes many of us who uh, are uh, tagged with being on the left, if you look at what conservatism really means, conserving you know, our traditions and our values, that makes us the conservatives. We're the real conservatives. <laughs> the book argues for that. Maybe it didn't intend to. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it is. In many ways, it is a conservative book. I totally agree. And, and that's it, is that, is that we've lost some kind of, some kind of notion of, of, as you say, of conservation of our own values, yes. um, of, our, of our ideals. Um, you know, of, of our environment. <laughs> you know, I mean, so the so-called conservatives don't seem interested in conserving anything other than anything. their own wealth, as yes. far as I can tell. <laughs> their own wealth and power and sexism, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, those are intertwined, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> That's true, they are. The, uh, the book is called Behold America. Our guest today is its author, Sarah Churchwell, The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream. Bert Cohen here, your host on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift. We need everybody involved. As you 
say the American dream of democracy would become blighted by toxic inequity. I was surprised to read that it used to be that, quote, the American dream was opposed to economic inequality and laissez-faire capitalism. And that a hundred years ago, many people considered billionaires un-American. And that the American dream was about how to stop uh, multi-millionaires, not how to become one. Today, they're pictured as the essential realization of the American dream. How, what are the factors that, that made it change so drastically? Mm. Well, I mean, it's a little hard, you know, when you're talking about national value systems, of course, it's hard to make um, you know, sweeping generalizations or to really pin down a moment when when a cultural ethos starts to shift. But one of the ways I think about it is that, of course, you know, the America's, these founding ideals that we've been talking about, if you think about liberty and justice, you know, liberty and justice for all, yeah. we're all taught that phrase, but we're not taught to think about the fact that liberty and justice are very quickly in tension with each other. Right? They yeah. have a very uneasy coexistence, because obviously my liberty might be against your justice, right? So justice will often infringe on individual liberty. And so I think as a country, we've, we've struggled to keep those two ideals in balance. And basically what happened was uh, after the Second World War, um, and, and fascism in Europe had a lot to do with this, um, increasingly liberty came to seem the most important ideal, and you should pardon the expression, to trump all other ideals. Yeah. And so... Uh, um, you know, principles of egalitarianism and of um, and of justice, of social justice in particular, began to to you know kind of ebb away. But you know, they didn't completely disappear. So we had you know movements for civil rights, and then movements for feminism, for gay rights, for human rights, um, which of course is you know the new way of conceiving of it, really in the Carter administration that we really start talking about human rights huh. more broadly. So so that. So those evolutions toward, or, you know, pushes toward justice continued, but, but the American dream became associated with kind of individual liberty to the exclusion of all other considerations, where once that had been won among many considerations, right. and indeed making money had been won among many. I'm not suggesting that Americans didn't care about making money, but it wasn't the be-all and the end-all, and it wasn't a kind of, um, it wasn't a kind of belief system in and of itself. And mm. it's really by the 20s that you see it start to become a kind of religion, um, uh. where people, you know, Calvin Coolidge says, you know, the, the, the business of America is business, and he, and he has all of these um, metaphors about worshiping um, business, you know, when he was president. Um, but it, but it really so that so that was on the kind of it was on the up that feeling that the American dream would be associated with individual wealth with individual opportunity. But it really shifts after the Second World War. It really shifts in the Cold War, right? So with consumer capitalism, in the sense that that's uh, what that's what American democracy looks like, and that's how we're going to defeat the Soviet Union. Is that you know there's this kind of you know sense that our way of life is the best way of life, and that we've you know, vindicated our own ideals by getting rich and winning the war. And that's how we're going to put the Soviet Union in their place as well. It's sort of like, you know, buy a frigid air and you'll prove the Russians wrong. Right. Um, you know, and so there was this kind of sense that consumerism became the, the defining feature of American democracy. And that was what we would export abroad as part of, you know, um, soft power. And that's how we would fight the Cold War. So I think at that point, Amer the American dream um, as this kind of consumerist version yes. of democracy 
pretty much took hold. And that's around the time that Harry Truman uh. declared that the, the fundamental right of um, Americans was freedom of enterprise, which again, you know, I mean, I thought that was a much older phrase. And I, and I'm sh- I, I hope I'm not alone in that. I expect other Americans thought that was an older phrase um, as well, but it wasn't enshrined until 1947. So it's really a post-war boom kind of a mentality. And then we just never got out of it. We just haven't ever re-examined the American dream that we inherited. And that's what I wanted this book to do. You reminded me that when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, there was a one-term governor who changed the name of Office of Citizen Affairs to Office of Consumer Affairs. Uh, It switched back right after that because there's a difference between being a citizen and just being a consumer. Oh, my goodness. There sure is. (laughs) Well, while the phrase American Dream at least has its roots in what you call principled appeals for more generous way of life— the other phrase you put under the microscope in this book is the newly reborn America first, which, if I read it correctly, doesn't at all have benign roots. <laughs> Tell us about its origins, no. please. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. Ha- it's not very redeemable in my <laughs> in my view. Um, so it was it was first popularized by um, Woodrow Wilson in 1915 um, as uh, as a way to talk about keeping America out of the First World War. A lot of people associate it with debates about the Second World War, and it was involved in those, but that's not where it began. Mm-hmm. Um, but and and Wilson was trying to do something very kind of um, very kind of wily. He was trying to be internationalist and to pander to to isolationists at the same time. So he was yes. kind of trying to have it both ways. So he said. We should put America, we, we, America should be first to lead, um, and it should be first to pick up the pieces in, in Europe. So he was arguing for American neutrality, not isolationism. And it is, it may sound like the same thing, but of course it's not. It's just saying we can be there and we can, and we can be there to support both sides and to support, uh, civilians and to support the Red Cross and to support other neutral countries like Belgium. So it wasn't an isolationism from Wilson that said we'll just stay at home and Europe can solve its own problems. Um, but it was saying, America, America first would mean that we would be first to lead and we would not choose any particular side. So he was trying to navigate this very tricky route, and unsurprisingly, um, people didn't pick up on all that complexity and nuance, and what happened was the phrase just got taken up in the name of pure isolationism and protectionism very, very quickly. And it became an incredibly popular phrase. Both um, Wilson and his Republican opponent ran on on an America right. First campaign slogan in 1916, which is kind of remarkable when you think about it. I mean, both candidates running on the same slogan, so you know you could have America First or you could have America First. Those were your <laughs> those were your options. Um, and then the phrase was associated with the debates about keeping us out of the League of Nations oh, um, yeah. and with the uh, the attempt to pass a permanent protectionist tariff. Warren Harding ran on America First in 1920. Calvin Coolidge used America First in 1924 when he was signing the National Origins Act into law. Mm. And, of course, that was the the major immigration act that was enforced until LBJ reversed it in 1965, and that was the Quotas Immigration Act, um, a kind of infamous, ruthless, brutal, um, and and eugenicist at its heart. Yes. Immigration Act that set quotas on people according to their nation of origin, which is to say, really their ethnicity, mm. um, and and so it it said you know that we could you could only have you know X number of of you know people from right. southern Italy or from or you know Jews from Germany 
and indeed it excluded Asians almost altogether. The Chinese had already been barred, and it and it massively restricted Japanese immigration. So it was a it was an you know it was an inherently it was deeply xenophobic and really inherently racist. Oh, yeah. um, uh, you know, in sweeping law that had huge consequences. I mean, that law was still in effect in 1939 when we were turning away Jewish refugees from Hitler, and that was why, because we already filled our quotas with German Jews, and so they weren't going to take in anymore. Um, and so, you know, those, I mean, you know, people literally died, yes. uh, many people literally died because of these laws. Um, and those were signed in the name of America First. They were debated in the name of America First on the floor of Congress. So it, it had it very quickly um, got caught up with these um, nativist ideas yeah. about what what America should look like, and indeed how white America should be, and what it what its ethnic makeup ought to be, and that was what America first started to mean very very quickly. Oh, it's just so ugly. You don't suppose when it, when Trump says America first, he's in any way applying racism, not do you? <laughs> I have a funny feeling he might be. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, it, you know, it, I mean, let's you mean, just start with the fact that David Duke said that yeah. you know, when he endorsed Trump that, right. you know, he stands for what I stand for. He stands for America first. I mean, there's, yes. you know, there's an awful lot of evidence. Oh, my goodness. Yes. As part of the of America firstism is the phrase, uh, the phrase, the phrase America first is the concept of 100 percent American. Fascinating. You write, write that the phrase is, quote, no mere metaphor in a country that measured people in percentages and fractions in order to deny them full humanity, end of quote. Of course, you're referring to the 18th century law, which declared slaves as three-fifths of a person. And in the early 20th century, hyphenated Americans were considered less than full Americans, certainly during the First World War. As such, they were alien and not to be trusted. Talk about the history of 100% Americanism as it relates to the Trumpian vision of America today. Yeah. Well, so the, the, as you say, it's, it's, a, it's a clear kind of reference to um, the idea that black people were three-fifths, or you know, slaves were three-fifths of a, of a human. Um, they weren't full citizens. But it's also a reference, I think, to the one-drop rule, which was the 19th century way in which that law uh, or, or that uh, um, act got, you know, kind of played out. Um, the ways in which we, we enforced a race-based uh, slave system was through the one-drop rule. And, of course, the one-drop rule said that one drop of Negro blood, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. um, one drop of Negro blood made you a Negro, but it took 100% of Anglo-Saxon blood to make you an Anglo-Saxon. Mm. Now, that's not merely a question of racism in an era in which if you are black, you do not have, you're not, you know, you might in, at the early part be subject to slavery. Right. Um, it's a, it literally determines whether you're enslaved or free. And then after the war during Reconstruction and Jim Crow, it still, you know, hugely um, affects your enfranchisement, uh, you know, your, your economic rights, your political rights, your legal and juridical rights. You know, your likelihood to be imprisoned, et cetera, et cetera, oh, yeah. et cetera. So the stakes couldn't be any higher about whether you have 1% of Negro blood or are 100% Anglo-Saxon. And that idea of being 100% Anglo-Saxon started to become this kind of governing metaphor. Um, so you can see that there's a very quick 
slippage there from 100% Anglo-Saxon to 100% American. Because if you're not 100% Anglo-Saxon, you're not a full citizen. So you're not 100% American. You are weirdly foreign or in some way just suspiciously not fully American, whether that's because you have a different race, a different religion, a different ethnicity, um, a different nation of origin. And, and it's that logic, the logic that says that if you're not 100% white, you're not 100% American, right. is exactly the logic of the birther conspiracy. That is how Donald Trump got his start, was by saying that Barack Obama could not possibly be a real American. Well, why couldn't he be a real American? Well, because he had a foreign name and a foreign father, and Donald Trump, and, and but most importantly, of course, he was black, and he had a name that sounded Muslim, and all of those things meant that for a certain way of thinking about what a, what a real American is, or what a 100% American really is, um, is that Barack Obama, by definition, was excluded from that. And of course, since you have to be a full American citizen, you know, a, a right. native-born American citizen to be president, they said that that made him um, illegitimate as a president. So it's the kind of chain of associations that says that to be 100% American, you have to be 100% Anglo-Saxon. And look, Stephen Miller, um, uh, Trump's, you know, wonderful senior advisor who's behind the, the decision to abduct babies from parents who commit a misdemeanor, um, he wrote on his high school yearbook page that he was uh, 100% American. Um, so these guys have kept these phrases alive. You know, Steve Bannon um, has spoken about economic nationalism, and economic nationalism oh, yeah. was the protectionist platform that they debated around the League of Nations in association with America First. And you can't just coincidentally come up with these phrases. You know, they are dog whistles. These guys, you know, Trump hasn't read history, but these guys yeah. have. And yeah. and as, as I show in the book, even Trump knew what America First meant when he um, when he decided whether or not to support Pat Buchanan, who also used America First as a slogan in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And, and Trump said outright, he said, I think Buchanan's just using that phrase to curry favor with the right-wing wacko vote. <laughs> and then you go, oh, okay, well, 20 years later, I guess you decided it worked. Huh? Yeah, it did work. Um, and, and you know? the f- so he, but he knows what it means. Yeah, yeah, he does. And, and, and again, growing up in the 50s and 60s, uh, hearing the phrase 100% Americanism from the John Birch Society. And that, you know, that was a, a chilling effect when there was this, you know, anti-communist fear, which also was anti-alien. And nowadays, fast yeah. forward to 2018, if you're not 100% behind Trump, you must have alien ideas, you know. And, and yeah, exactly. And it's yeah. fascinating. Yep, you know, right back there. Right back there. We're not just Democrats. We're enemies. And, you know, yeah. obviously not 100% American. Anti-American. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's it's pretty amazing. But, you know, people need to read history. Will they? No. But it's there if they want to. Uh, but it's, it's a yeah. very interesting book. How did the concept of 100% Americanism affect the Ku Klux Klan, which had pretty much died out after the uh, the War of Secession, it, it was pretty much gone, yeah. but it experienced a resurgence in the uh, late 19-teens and 20s. How yeah, did, how in the early 20s. In fact, it wasn't just pretty much gone, it was eradicated. Um, federal forces wiped out the first Ku Klux Klan, and it was just moribund. Oh. Um, but then in 1915, um, after uh, a man named Colonel Simmons um, watched the film Birth of a Nation... Oh. He, uh, which of course is a glorification of the myth that the Klan arose in order to protect victimized whites 
from marauding black people oh, yes. um, in uh, the Reconstruction South, which you know, as as perversions of history go, is um, is is you know one of the one of the most outrageous in in America. The idea that white people were the victims of black people. Um, you know, when of course it was God, really. precisely the opposite Absolutely. that was the case. Yes. Um, and it, you know, and I and I can't hear that stuff now without thinking about about Kavanaugh and the way that now you uh-huh. know, we're being told that he was victimized by this process, where it's pretty clear that it's the women who have been victimized by this process and not him. He's now in the Supreme Court. He's doing fine. He's not a victim in this scenario. Um, and you have a similar kind of logic with the KKK arguing that they're the great victims of the aftermath of the Civil War and so the KKK, or the white people are, and so the KKK has to rise by their myth, you know, mythological logic, um, has to rise to protect white people um, from these violent um, black people who have been liberated into a, into, you know, a freedom they can't handle. Um, and so the KKK was reborn in, in um, 1915, and as I've said, that's exactly the same year that Wilson um, popularized America first. So it was, and and the the second KKK was not only anti-black, but it was um, virulently nativist, xenophobic, very, very anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, and anti-Semitic. So they didn't restrict their hatred um, to to just African Americans, although, of course, they bore the brunt of it. Um, But there was a lot of anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant violence and anti-Semitic violence as well. and so when this phrase America First became popularized and it became entangled with this idea of 100% American very quickly because they just, they, they sound intuitively connected, don't they? Um, and, and the clan very quick, the new clan, the second clan very right. quickly adopted both phrases as their kind of favorite slogans. Um, indeed, by the, by the late 20s, they would claim that they had copyrighted them. Um, which wasn't true, but they sort of, and they said that they like originated them. They were so determined to own those two phrases. Um, and they would march with banners that said, you know, America first, 100% American, and white supremacy. So, you know, in case, you know, in case we're in any doubt about what the Klan stood for, they were very clear about it. Yeah. And indeed, they were clear that they were a terrorist organization as well. I mean, they proudly proclaimed themselves to be one, and they named their own officers terrors with a capital T. So they weren't in any doubt about this, and it's only in hindsight that we've started to suggest that maybe they weren't a terrorist organization because our ideas about terrorism have become so racialized. But they didn't have any problem understanding that white people were terrorists. Um, And that's what they were for. And so these ideas of, uh, and and indeed that they were explicitly white supremacists. So now we have people on the alt-right saying, you know, well, this is a new kind of white nationalism and they're not white supremacists the way those guys were. And, and, you know, know, I I think that kind of... um, that, that kind of what aboutery and and uh-huh. um, and and evasiveness and hair splitting is um, you know is is I mean it's the least of their crimes but it is deeply dishonest and deeply disingenuous. At the end of the day, this is about white nationalism and white supremacism. You call it what you like, but that's what you're that's what you're espousing. And the KKK did so in the name of America first, all the way through the twenties, and then by the late twenties, for various reasons, the KKK was in decline because of corruption and sexual scandals, which should sound familiar, <laughs> tends to be what brings these groups down. Um, they have that in common. They were in decline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they run through history. Um, so the Klan as such was in the decline, but there were many other self-styled fascist groups by yes. the early 1930s in America that were picking up the baton. And they were proclaiming themselves uh, for America first. And by the early 1930s, there was an official American Nazi movement um, 
which is where the the um, image on my front cover that you mentioned comes from of um, of people marching with both the the stars and stripes and swastikas at the same time. But there were lots of other um, fascist groups in America as well. We had a group called the Silver Shirts, which was a kind of homage to the brown shirts and the black shirts um, in Europe. And we had some, you know, Knights of the White Camellia and, and lots of things with Christian in the name, Christian Crusaders and, you know, what have you. And, and they would all say that they were groups that were for America first. So that kind of, of white nationalist xenophobic platform just began to shift from the, um, from the implicitly fascistic uh, platform of the KKK to the explicitly self-identified fascist group. Yeah of the early 1930s. I find it fascinating that they could be both fascisti, fascist, and say that they're for America first. And, uh, you know, uh, the American dream is certainly the polar opposite of that. But they're, you know, the right wing is so good at declaring themselves poor, innocent victims and that we are the bad guys. Yeah. It's interesting to see that there's a long history of that. I really wasn't aware. I, I thought there was something fairly new. It seems like, they have perhaps learned from some degree of history. And uh, again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, our guest today, Sarah Churchwell, her new book is Behold America, The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream. You write that at the end of uh, Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, the author describes the narrowing of the American Dream from a vision of infinite human potential to an avaricious desire for the kind of power wielded by stupid white supremacist plutocrats to display their dominance. Why do I picture Donald <laughs> Trump when I hear that? And, and that it went from a dream of justice, liberty, and equality to a justification for selfishness and greed. I wonder if you could talk, tell us about the roles that writers like F. Scott Fitzgerald, John Steinbeck, Sinclair Lewis, and William Faulkner played in our understanding of the American dream, to get back to that topic. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, of course, we think of novels like The Great Gatsby and um, and uh, uh, Steinbeck's uh, Grapes of Wrath or Of Mice and Men. And, you know, and those books are taught not just in America, but around the world as the kind of, you know, archetypal books of the American dream. And 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 yet they don't actually use the phrase the American dream um, because it, it hadn't yet been fully popularized. And if you'd said to Fitzgerald, is, is The Great Gatsby about the American dream, he wouldn't really know what you meant. Um, until the 30s, until after it was, until after it was written. But um, but they're clearly getting at. I mean, there's a reason why people think they're books about the American dream because they are um, by what we mean about the American dream. But what's interesting to me is that you know something like Gatsby. The whole point, as 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 I say in that passage you just read, is that the whole point of the Great Gatsby is that if you think about Jay Gatsby as the kind of emblematic American, and you know clearly that's what he's supposed to be, sure. this kind of archetypal. You know, almost a kind of every man, except that he has, um, except that he has greater abilities than many. Um, is that what he represents is somebody who has infinite capacity, and that's something that Fitzgerald talks about um, all the time uh, in the novel: his capacity for hope, his romantic readiness, his artistic potential, his riotous imagination, and all of those are kind of images for mm -hmm. I think you know if we think of him as as this kind of symbol of of the nation for a country that could be anything, that's dreaming these huge dreams and has this huge continent and could do anything with it, with this kind of great, you know, political experiment that it takes on. And by the 1920s, Fitzgerald could see that it had settled for big houses and big cars yeah. and, right. you know, 
shallow, pretty, rich women, and that that would do. And that basically what Jay Gatsby dreams of is an old, uh, you're being part of an old European aristocracy that is represented by the Buchanans. And so that all of those possibilities for new dreams and for and for new ideals and values, and indeed for a kind of artistic response to to the to the continent and to the nation um, had got lost by the wayside. And it's that diminution, that diminishing of the dream that for Fitzgerald is the tragedy, and that's why Gatsby has to die, because he's been corrupted by it. Um, he's been corrupted by his desire to get rich. It's made him a criminal. So all of those higher aspirations um, have been lost. And so I think that really is a kind of emblematic story about the American dream. I mean, Fitzgerald, uh, you know, captures in the moment that it was starting to happen, yeah. that decline, the, 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 the gradual deterioration and degradation of our ideals. And he, and he predicted that it was just going to keep going like that. And, of course, that's exactly what happened, to the point where now we have, you know, film versions of Gatsby and, and you know, people writing about Gatsby who don't seem to understand that it's a critique of capitalism and luxury and wealth and seem to think that it's merely a celebration of them, Whoa. which it really isn't. Ah. No, it's certainly not. That I'm glad young people still actually read that book these days, and reading is is a good thing. I mean, uh, I'm sure Trump. I don't know. He he might be able to read something, but anyway, we won't get into that. But certainly, uh, uh, um, Wilson used the phrase "America First to get into the uh, uh, First World War. How did the American Dream and America First come to be in conflict in the run up to the Second World War? Yeah. Well, that was the thing that surprised me, actually. Um, and it was one of the reasons I decided to end the book where I did, because there was a question about, you know, whether I would try to do the post-war um, a, a version of these phrases and um, of America as well. First of all, it would have been a much longer book, and it's not a short book to start with. Um, but um, but I also felt that that post-war story has been told a lot. We know, you know, there are a lot of books about the American dream and the um, in the second half of the 20th century, um, and, you know, they're excellent. I wasn't sure that, that that needed to be retraced. But also then when I when I realized that what was happening was that when both America First and the American Dream had gained enough traction as national catchphrases and they were familiar enough that people used them, you know, very easily and offhandedly and they would come quickly to mind, what happened was that in the debates over whether America should enter the Second World War, the two came directly into conflict, and they basically were used to argue for each side of the case. And so the America First side was the isolationist, um, and in many cases, not all cases, um, anti-Semitic and um, Nazi-appeasing uh, um, argument that America should stay out of the war. And Charles Lindbergh, of course, was the, the most famous spokesman for the America First Committee, and he, um, and in his broadcasts, he made very clear that, and, and, you know, they're easy to look up, you can just Google them and, and see what he said, and, and you'll see that I'm not even exaggerating, that he, he, would, he said over and over again, if this is not a question of the white races, that's his phrase, of the white races having to band together to protect ourselves from some foreign intruder, um, like a Genghis Khan or a Xerxes, right? So either somebody Asian or suspiciously, you know, Middle Eastern. Um, that um, he said, this is this is just an um, uh, an inner fight 
between two white races, and he would use that phrase over and over again. So basically what he was saying was, as long as some white race is in charge, it doesn't matter which one. Uh. And, you know, what, whether I mean, he really was, right? That's what he was saying. Was, well, you know, who cares whether it's the Germans or the British, as long as white people are in charge. If we had to band together to repel some Asiatic intruder, that's his phrase. Wow. Um, then we would have to do that to avoid the dilution of our race. But because so it's a very very eugenicist argument. But because we don't have to avoid the dilution of our race, then why, why not let the Germans win? That's fine. Um, and so he just you know he couldn't see any problem with it. And so for that was what became um, espoused in the name of America First. Now America First, but at its um, at its most powerful in 1940 1941, had almost 800,000 members. By no means all of whom were Nazi sympathizers or anti-Semitic as such. Um, or indeed eugenicists. It had socialists and conscientious objectors and pacifists and students. And so there were people there with uh, all kinds of agendas. I mean, it became a very big organization. But but its official spokesmen and the kinds of speeches that were on its behalf were about appeasing the Nazis and basically about surrendering. And then what happened was the people who took the fight to Limburg, including a remarkable journalist called Dorothy Thompson, Ah, um, who was... She was, she was extraordinary and, and undeservedly forgotten. Um, she really was the voice of the anti-fascist cause in America in the 30s, and um, she was um, voted in 1939 the second most influential woman in America after Eleanor Roosevelt. She had this national syndicated column, and she and she just was relentless in her fight against fascism. She'd been in Europe in the 20s and watched the rise of European fascism in Austria, in Germany in Italy. She was um, one of the first Americans to interview Hitler. She was the first right. to get booted out by Hitler, by the Third Reich, which made her an international celebrity. So she knew how fascism worked. And she started arguing against fascism in the name of the American dream and saying that the, Amer- you know, the American dream would need to defeat this idea of America first. And so although for most of my book mm. and most of my narrative, you think that the two phrases are on a parallel track, um, they're actually converging, and where they converge was in this huge national debate about what America's role should be in the Second World War and indeed um, in the world order afterwards. Wow, fascinating! It's, it must have been really fun writing this book. I, I have to say, at least I, I, I find, I find <laughs> well, it. Well, well, yes, yes, and no. It was upsetting. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, well, it, it, you know, just and it was um, being in America today I mean, is upsetting. Yeah. And it's good to know where where it comes from. And certainly today, there's so many parallels. Today, educated people are derided as elitist. You write that America First became a defiantly anti-intellectual position. So here we are now. You know, they they want to value ignorance just as much as uh, being educated. And you also talk of a speech by former Senator Alfred or Albert Beveridge in 1920, to a large, enthusiastic crowd seeing parallels here in Indiana. You write that the monster audience responded to his appeals for a purified American race and its appeals to an entirely mythical, uh, racially homogenous past with thunderous applause. Why do I see parallels to Trump rallies in 2018? Well, indeed, uh, indeed. I mean, you know, the, the, one of the earliest examples of the American dream, in fact, is what I opened the first chapter with, is um, an article from 1900 saying, "Beware discontented multimillionaires, because they will be the they will destroy the American dream." Whoa. And uh, yeah, and and like wow. you, I'm afraid I had a particular discontented multimillionaire in, in mind um, <laughs> when I saw that uh, when I saw that quotation. And look, there are those parallels. There is that feeling that that they've picked up on an you know that 
what I wanted to do really with this book was to, although people, we th- many of us think of Trump as an anomaly, and of course many of us were taken aback and then were chastised right. and sneered at for having been surprised, and um, and then we're told that our surprise is why he got elected, um, mm. you know, and if we could stop being so liberal and elitist, then he wouldn't have gotten elected. I take issue with that argument. I I think that liberals are not responsible for Donald Trump being elected. I think the conservatives who voted for him are responsible for Donald Trump being elected, and the liberals who didn't vote for him are not responsible for him being elected. <laughs> but that's maybe another debate. Um, <laughs> but the but the idea that he's an anomaly, I think, yeah. is just historically wrong. Yeah. And what I really wanted to do with this book was to show that this particular strain, this this nativist, anti-intellectual, populist um, in that, uh, uh, strain that responds to demagoguery, that it that sees um, some notion of a real America in uh, in rural areas and is suspicious of urban and cosmopolitan areas um, because they're too ethnically mixed, because they're too cosmopolitan. The idea that that's somehow less American. Than people who live in a small town in a rural area, where whereas you know many of us might argue it's just a different, uh, it's just a different experience of living in America, but it's not less American or more American. And that gets back to this point about fractions and percentages, yeah. you know, measuring yeah. who's the real American in this scenario. And that goes back at least to Jackson, right? I mean, these are these are old ideas. The word nativist comes from the 1840s and 1850s, from those waves of immigration of the the Irish, the Germans, and the Italians in mm. particular. Um, and, you know, and that led to the formation of the modern Republican Party. So what I kind of wanted to do was to show that Trump doesn't actually come out of nowhere. He's just the first really successful iteration of this, um, you know, for all kinds of reasons that we all have been, you know, spending a lot of time analyzing and, and trying to understand, you know, how he did um, manage to win all those electoral colleges and, you know, get 77,000 votes across three states and somehow eke it out. Um, but... But it's not a new strain, and and um, and you know Trumpism is if there is such a thing, if there's anything as consistent as an ism um, <laughs> around him, and it's not just money grabbing and power grabbing, which I tend to think it is. Um, but the way in which he has successfully, um, what sort I want, like he successfully resuscitated uh. these. Um, you know, these kinds of of sentiments and movements. They've always been there. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, kind of latent or, you know, and, and we have these kind of, you know, um, ups, you know, ups and downs, these, these, they ebb and they flow. And so at the moment, you know, he managed to harness them yeah. and, and to ride them to power. But, but what I wanted to do with this, with this book was to show that there is, we have to realign our understanding of American history because what looked in the past like these kinds of blips, moments of these outbreaks of populism that then subsided with the election of Trump, they ceased to look like blips. And they look more like a divergent path that was, and I'm not saying it had to lead this way, I'm not saying it's inevitable, but at all. But now that he has been elected, that means we have to understand the powers that brought him um, into, uh, into the White House. We do have a responsibility to understand, I think, and it's it certainly, uh, you know, he, he is not the problem. He is uh, an example of the, of, of, he's a symptom yeah. of the problem. Now, one of the, the there's a number of good people. He's also t- the problem. I, have well, to yeah. <laughs> I think he is also the problem. Yeah. Yes, he is a symptom of a bigger problem. But he kind of lifted the these lids off the sewers that have always been there. Yeah. And it kind of stinks. <laughs> but there were some good people. There's Dorothy Thompson, who's describing your book. Also, one of my favorites, Walter Lippmann. Just mm-hmm. talk about who he was and what his vision of an American dream was. He was, he was a big character. Yeah, yeah, he sure was. 
Um, and, and in fact, he and Dorothy Thompson ended up being colleagues at the same paper, and they were the two most influential columnists in America in the 30s and 40s. Um, Lippmann was a kind of premier public intellectual uh, journalist. Um, he's the one who actually popularized the phrase Cold War, um, for example. Um, he was a very, very influential figure, but he was one of the first um, writers to use the American dream um, in kind of contexts that we would recognize, in debates about immigration. Um, in fact, uh, one of the earliest uses that he has um, is in uh, a debate about IQ tests this new idea of IQ tests in the 1920s. And, um, and Lippmann was having none of it. He, he argued from the start that IQ tests were, again, basically eugenicist, and that they were being used to deny particularly black people and Jewish people. Lippmann himself was a first-generation uh, um, a Jew from New York. And, um, and he argued that, it was, that IQ tests were being used to deny certain categories of people access to education and to various kinds of opportunities. And he was not buying IQ tests because he said, how can you claim to measure intelligence when you've never defined it? Which seems to me a pretty good question. Um, and so he saw very quick, he said that if things like IQ tests were going to be used to exclude all Americans from access to the higher education that would let them fulfill their own capacities and, you know, realize all of their own abilities, um, he said that would be the end of the American dream. And, and he said, you know, at the end of the American dream, he said we would be left with a literate but uneducated right. democracy. In other words, you know, people who could read but couldn't think, um, to put it, you know, crudely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and, and that those people, he predicted, would elect Highlands and Thompsons and Mussolini's. And as I explained in the book, um, Highland was the mayor of New York. Thompson was the mayor of Chicago. Highland was famous for, for being an idiot, um, for uh, giving these garbled speeches. Um, nobody, right. seriously, right. nobody thought he could win. He should sound familiar, too. Um, Thompson, Big Bill Thompson, was the um, incredibly corrupt Chicago mayor um, during the, the, the heyday of the uh, Chicago machine. He was openly friends with Al Capone. Um, he was also uh, a supporter of America First, by the by. And then, of course, we all know who Mussolini is, right? So, so, um, so what Lippmann was predicting was that if you didn't protect education for education's sake, the, the American dream would die. And what that would mean would be that you would, you would have um, a polity that would vote for the stupid, the corrupt, and the fascistic. Um, and he had three in mind, and I kind of had one in mind <laughs> when I was um, writing about that. Um, and so he was, um, he was somebody who was uh, very um, early on thinking about what this idea right. of, of um, a modern American dream might look like and writing about it in really influential ways. He's sometimes been credited with being the first to coin the phrase. He's not, but he was one of the first important writers to use it consistently. Yeah, the more I've read about him, the more I like him, I must say. Uh, yeah. Uh, fascinating absolutely. history. Uh, has the individualist new definition uh, of the American dream, which is you know, pretty much what is understood to be the American dream, do you think it's finally left behind the principles of constitutional democracy and equality? Tough question. Well, it seems to be at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does seem but... to be. And that's, that's what I mean, right, is that, is that the individualism is so radical that there's this sense among many Americans that, you know, you hear and, 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 you, and you read that they don't feel any sense of responsibility for another human being at all. They don't, and, and, right. 
and I kind of think, well, what, what kind of society do you have then? What does it mean to be an American if, if that literally means that you just, you, you only care for yourself and maybe for your immediate family or your very immediate neighborhood? And otherwise you have no, you feel no sense of accountability or responsibility to the collective good, to the whole of the nation. What, right. Why even call yourself an American? Right. Then do just call yourself a, a Texan or a Vermonter or a, you know, or a Montanan or whatever because you're not even, you're not even, claiming any kinship with the rest of the nation um and so for me this the, the that uh, it's not that i don't believe in individual aspiration and i and i'm not a socialist and i don't think that that we should be getting rid of individual striving and individual oh, ambition i think we it's need to get a better balance yes. but but to have it just be pure individualism dog eat dog is simply not working and of course what's what's really happening i think is that the is that the real vested powers and the dark money and you know the the um, the people who are really pulling the strings yeah. are using this radical individualism as a as a very effective divide and conquer strategy. Yeah. So um, you know, I mean, the NRA is a perfect example of that. Convince all the Americans that they desperately have to have their guns. Well, that wasn't true thirty years ago. I mean, I remember when that wasn't true. Oh, yeah. And now we're being told with this crazily revisionist history that it has always been like this. Um, well, it was not always like this. No, the NRA actually changed. True. In 1979, they, they had a coup within the NRA. Uh, exactly, exactly. They flipped. And so the, um, and, you know, and the consequences of that have been severe. But as I oh, say, I think yeah. they're profiting off of it, right? I think it is a divide and conquer. If you can atomize everybody in the society, and then, then you know, you're not going to have any kind of collective action for change, and democracy ceases to work. So there's this kind of insane short-termism that has taken hold of the country no. that is, um, connected to this radical individualism that people just won't question, and they have to start questioning it again, or we are going to fall apart. And it's true, the founders, as I understood them, were about something called the common good. And, you yeah. know, to be... Remember that? Yeah, it seems to me to be genuinely American and patriotic. You do uh, believe in the common good. That is seen as so radical <laughs> these days. Well, I, I try, always try to end on a positive note. It's a little difficult. Is there a... <laughs> possibly enough energy behind the resistance to Trumpism to, as you say, control unbridled capitalism to secure the well-being of all Americans, not just the wealthy and powerful, to restore a belief in the social contract, a sense of society as a moral economy. Could there be enough strength in the resistance to revitalize that? <laughs> well, let's hope so. I mean, we'll know a lot more in 19 days, won't we? Um you know, big red X's on my calendar, as I'm sure a lot of people oh do. And, you know, and we will know a lot more um, then about how far we can get and how and how angry and motivated people truly are, um, how willing they are to get out and how much gerrymandering and voter suppression is going uh. to um, to affect turnout. So, but, you know, look, you know, we've been talking about um, lots of old American ideals and values, but we haven't mentioned optimism, and it's, you know, right. bread in our bones. And, um, yes. and I have to be optimistic. I have to believe that our democracy can survive this. But, you know, I, I, as you said, I'm, I'm speaking from London right now. I live in Europe, or at least it's Europe right now. It might not be Europe for long. <laughs> um, but, I, but I also go to the, <laughs> this is a whole other thing, I go to the continent a fair bit as well for various kinds of talks and things, and, and people ask me here, you know, do you, do you think America is irredeemably poisoned? Do you think that there's mm. any way it can come back? And I say, look, I, I do think it can come back. And the reason for that, the example I'll give you, which might sound facile, but is anything but, is Germany. Nazi Germany was a hell of a lot worse than what the United States is right now. 
and they've turned around to become one of the most robust Western democracies. Now, yeah, they're in trouble now, too. Everybody is right now. But the point is, is that they were able to absolutely turn it around because the collective will was there. And they... They learned from history. Yeah, exactly. They confronted their own past, and they said, never again, we're not going to make these mistakes again. And they used education, and they, and they, uh, you know, and they, and they um, you know, figured out new political structures, and, and, and said, you know, we, and, and also they think a lot about how they use popular culture there, which is something we don't examine at all. Yeah. In Germany, it, they have a very careful relationship because they understand how powerful popular culture can be, how important that was as propaganda to the Nazis. They're very careful about that stuff. That doesn't mean they're going to get it right, but but they are an example of the fact that you can be much more poisoned than we are today and still turn it around and become a robust democracy. So, of course, we can come back. We just have to find the collective will to do it, and we have to um, rediscover that sense of the common good, of, of as I say in the book, of common weal and not just common wealth. Absolutely. I, uh, fun book. Behold America. Sarah Churchwell, The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream. It's put out by Basic Books. It, it just came out, and uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's hope we can uh, restore a better American dream.